The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which, uh, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Tonight I want us to look at in our outlines, and uh, if you have them now, uh, you are sinful by nature. And you're saying, well, great, thank you for giving us that title to start out with tonight. But we're going to look at our sinful nature as far as it is as a doctrine that Paul lays out here in the book of Romans. Father, help us as we look into your word tonight. Bless all that is said and all that is done. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week in Romans chapter 1, verses, verses 1 through 17, we saw Paul telling the believers of his servanthood. Uh, he highlighted his servanthood, how that he was a bond slave, in essence, to God, to Jesus Christ, and that he served him because of his salvation. And so tonight, we're going on past that, and starting in verse 18, we're actually going to go all the way through and cover through chapter 2 and verse 29, and we're going to see Paul now laying out really three categories uh, of people uh, who are sinful. He's basically telling us that everyone is sinful. It's leading us up there to the Romans chapter 3 as he deals with that there. Uh, tonight we look at the depiction of, of the bent of human, uh, human, humanity's nature when God removes his divine restraints. So humanity has its, in its nature a bent against God because God's divine restraints have been removed. Adam and Eve were perfect and perfectly in fellowship with God. But because his presence was removed when sin came, we are all now sinners by nature. Speaking of sin, I heard of a minister who told his congregation, he said, next week I plan to preach about the sin of lying. To help you understand my sermon, I want you all to go home and read Mark 17. The following Sunday, as he prepared to deliver his sermon, the minister asked for a show of hands. He wanted everyone in there to respond, how many read Mark 17? And everybody's hand came up. And the minister said, good, because there's only 16 chapters in Mark. Now I'll proceed with my message online. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. But simply to say, sometimes our nature reveals itself. Oh, I want to be pious. Yes, pastor, I read Mark 17. Really, it's not in the Bible. Uh, so we have a nature that is sinful. Uh, it is our bent. It is our flesh. It is built into us. And sometimes while our spiritual man wants nothing to do with sin, our flesh continues in sin. And Paul here is telling us why that is. I heard of children that were lined up in the cafeteria of a religious school for lunchtime. At the head of the table was a large pile of apples. The teacher made a note, take only one. God is watching. At the other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. A boy had written a note in front of them, take all you want, God is watching the apples. And that happens sometimes in our lives. Sometimes we think that God is watching something else and he's not looking at us. And so Paul here in verses, chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through the end of chapter 2, he starts to really unfold who is actually opposed to God, who stands against God and his nature. The gospel is a declaration of the righteousness of God. And that's what Paul is really driving to with the Roman believers in this letter. He's driving to the point where he can introduce them to the gospel. But to get saved, one must understand that they are lost. 
And Paul does a wonderful job. Remember last week we said that Paul, in his writing of Romans, it is one of the most masterful pieces of writing that has been done. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is reasoned and logical all the way through. And so he's laying out the argument. Listen, you're going to need a Savior when I'm done with you, is what Paul is saying here. And that is this section, and it's imperative for you and I. If we've been saved, great. But it helps us in witnessing to others. You know, the majority of religions in the world will start with this premise, you're fine. You might have some flaws, but you can work out those flaws. You are fine. Christianity, true fundamentalism from the Scripture says, you are flawed. And that's what Paul is laying out here. And I'm not saying that to depress us, but simply to say, when we understand our nature, it helps us to behave in the right way according to God. Number one tonight, the condition of the heathen. The condition of the heathen. In verses 18 through 32, Paul begins an analysis of the human depravity. The moral corruption that was reigning among the heathen. Even the so-called civilized heathen, the Romans, it was running rampant. Notice what he says in verse 21. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. That word vain means empty or directionless, pointless. They had all kinds of great plans, but they were to no end. There was no purpose in them. He said they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. What a a condemnation that God gives through the Apostle Paul. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And to the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And then in verses 24 down through uh, 32... He lays out the absolute epitome, the height, the extreme of our sinful nature. He deals with really perverse sins that are there. And and he says three times in that passage, very interesting thing. He says, God gave them up, God gave them up, and then he finishes by saying, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. The picture here is this, is that God is trying to redeem mankind. God wants a relationship with mankind. But mankind, the Roman uh, culture in particular, wanted nothing to do with God. And and it, it traces, by the way, not just the Roman culture, but it traces all through humanity, all the way back to Adam and Eve. As we looked at this morning with Noah, their their imaginations were only wicked. Uh, Their violence filled the earth. And so here Paul is saying, listen, if you are standing opposed to God, the heathen world, the ones that don't care about morality, don't care about religion, don't care about God, the heathen world, those people stand in jeopardy of being given over to a reprobate mind. We're not debating or discussing uh, what that exactly means tonight. I do believe the Bible says God saves to the uttermost. Uh, The great theological debate is, can someone who has been turned over to a reprobate mind be saved? And the answer to that is, until you die, I believe there's an opportunity always to be saved. That's your pastor's opinion on that. That's the way I understand the scriptures. Otherwise, God would not save to the uttermost. He would save to a certain point, and he would stop. The condition of the heathen, number one, it was their ungodliness. That's verses 18 through 25, their ungodliness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are listed here. In fact, you can go ahead and write letter B, uh, their unrighteousness as well. The condition of the heathen, they were ungodly and they were unrighteous. Ungodliness is a direct disregard for God. Unrighteousness has a reference to the wickedness of conduct. 
So you think about this, an ungodly person simply says this, I don't care what God thinks. Woe to the Christian if they ever get to that point. Pastor, can a Christian fall to that level? Certainly. The book of Corinthians, Paul, as he's writing, says, and such were some of you before your salvation, and some of them had fallen right back into that wicked lifestyle. Certainly they could. I would say that the Christian that does that is in danger of being called home to glory because they're of no use to God. But simply put, there is ungodliness that is there in the heathen world. Human experience and natural history continually supply ample evidence that God's anger burns hot against ungodliness. God cannot stand the ungodliness of men. Uh, I love Proverbs chapter 6 when it goes through the things that God hates. Yea, seven are abomination to Him. Uh, God cannot stand sin. And what happens in our lives and what happens when we watch uh, the, uh, the state of our nation, the state of our community, uh, the state of our world, mankind assumes that God will just forgive him for his sin. But God hates sin. God said they are ungodly and they are unrighteous. Ungodliness takes many forms. I think the chief is, which, uh, is a deliberate stifling of divinely revealed truth. And that's what Paul says here. That's what they were doing is that God had given them uh, uh, truth. God had given them that. But they, in verse 24, turned that into a lie. Or verse 25, excuse me. They took the truth and they changed it into a lie. God says, no, you do not take my truth and change it into a lie. That is ungodly. That is the height of ungodliness. The heathen world, in verse 19, uh, never was and is now cut off from all the sources of knowledge. God will not reveal truth to him. This morning in our Sunday school hour, we were looking at the word of God and how we understand it to be important and why it, it is the foundation for everything we believe in our faith. Uh, and we said that it is true. We said there are three ways we learn. Everybody learns this way. Reason, experience, and revelation. I, I, we said in Sunday school hour, how did you know it was cold outside? Because through reason, you could look out the window and see snow on the ground. You could reason that it's cold. It's not going to have snow on the ground in the middle of August, we said. Through experience, I know that I have tried certain things and they work. I've tried other things and they don't work. So I've learned through my experience. And the final way that I know anything that is true is through revelation. God has revealed in his word what he wants me to know. And these people, the heathen world here, their condition was that they took what God gave them and they changed it into a lie. Sounds like a lot of religions today, doesn't it? Uh, I know the Bible it says uh, that it, salvation is free, but as a religion, I don't know if they all sat around and did this, but as a religion, let's say you got to work for it. See, they took what was true and they turned it into a lie. They turned it into something that is not, in fact, true or accurate. The unrighteousness that we're talking about uh, tonight is really man's apostasy from living and, uh, excuse me, away from the true God. Uh, living away from the principles of God. That is unrighteousness. You see, unrighteousness is the conduct. It's what flows out of an ungodly heart. Everything always starts with the heart. The Bible says out of the heart are they flow the issues of life. It is from my heart that come my then come my actions. I have to think it, the Bible says, and then I am. As a man thinketh, so is he. So it's in my heart that I'm ungodly, and then the unrighteousness of these heathen flowed out. Paul said, you are unrighteous. You are ungodly. We are sinners by nature, is what Paul is saying. Uh, there are three observations that I kind of put here in my notes. They're not in yours. Uh, there are three observations of Paul in verses 29 through 32. 
Um, he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, and then he lists a bunch of sins as he goes down. Verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are, are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. He said, look, you know all this list of terrible sins that are here. The backbiting, the lying, uh, the, the sins of the flesh that are there. He said, you know these, but you still do them. That is a heathen condition. That is that natural man that is there, the brute, if you will, the unlearned, the unrepentant uh, heart. Three stages of sin. It is a developmental process. No one goes from being godly to being absolutely ungodly and heathen. It's a development. Just like we are progressively sanctified, just like when I am saved, I don't have all of my sins completely out of my mind. They're all forgiven, but they still dwell in my mind. I have to progressively take out things and replace them with godly things. I had worldly music. I need to take that out and I need to put godly music in. I had worldly television shows. I need to take those in, take those out and put in some good Bible reading and some good spiritual books and some good doctrine. It's a process as well when I fall away from God. The unrighteousness that is there. Number two, there's the condition, I think, of the moral world. There's the condition of the heathen world. Then there's the condition of the moral world. Look in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges. Now, <clears throat> Paul is going to get into something that's a very controversial thing, and sometime I'll, t I'll try to tackle this, uh, the next couple verses about judging one another. Uh, but simply to say tonight, what Paul was arguing here is there was a moral, ethical pious person that would say, well, I have the moral high ground. Uh, it's kind of like uh, we see now in, in most of our universities and colleges uh, where they teach and preach and, and espouse socialism because they have the moral high ground. It is our moral obligation to do something. All right. So the moral man says, hey, listen, this is ethically right. They are guided by what they would say is their ethos, uh, their conscience, if you will. They might live by this creed, let your conscience be your guide. Well, Paul deals with that here. He deals with this moral crowd. By the way, that was influenced in the Roman culture by the Greeks, whom they conquered. Yet the Greek language persisted throughout the Roman Empire. It was the trade language. It was the common tongue that was spoken throughout the empire. And the Greek philosophy carried through. So the Roman Christians were now dealing with morally upright, ethical people that were opposed to the gospel. And Paul said they're sinners as well. And he starts into it here in verses one, uh, 1 through, excuse me, I lost my place, verses 1 through 16. He says, uh, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou, judgest, for thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to, notice this, truth. You see, when people start arguing ethics... There is such a thing as called situational ethics. Well, for this situation, this is the right behavior, and for that situation, then that's the right behavior. Is it ever right to tell a lie according to the Bible? Well, no. And that's what the Bible says. Of course not. But someone who believes in ethics and situational ethics will say, sometimes it's okay to lie to your spouse because they're better off not knowing so you see what God is saying, and Paul here is saying, is that, listen, the person that lives by ethics, the person that lives by morality and says, my morality is what is right, they are now placing themselves as God. They're the judge. 
Uh, they're the jury. They're the prosecutor. They're the ones that's, that are involved. It is never right to lie. He said, stick, in verse 2, to the truth. It's the easiest thing for us to understand. Morality is the result, really, of human effort. Spirituality is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in conforming a man to God's standard. So think about that. Morality is man knows what's best. Spirituality is God knows what's best. And that's what Paul now lays out in this argument, verses 1 through 16. He goes through and he chronicles. Listen, there is some important things that we need to know. <clears throat> Number or Letter A, no partiality. There is no partiality with God. But in an ethics and in a moral society, there is going to be favorites. There are going to be people that we look down and say, oh, poor them. And then there's going to be others that are the scourge of society. Think about America right now. And this message is not a political message at all. But think about America right now. Who are the ones that, oh, those poor people? Who are the people that fall into that category right now? People that are unemployed. And certainly these are all, I'm not making light of anyone, but people who are unemployed, people who do not have uh, uh, income right now, people who uh, are paying uh, the lower income classes, who are the scourge of society? By the way, I'm in that class, but who is the scourge of society? Oh, anybody that makes more than, well, depends on how you define it now, it was 250000 then it went to 175000 now it's 150000 Those people that make more than that, they are the scum of the earth. I mean, if I'm wrong, tell me. Uh, well, the rich don't pay taxes. And see, in an ethical society... Clear divisions, striking contrast come. The divisions are going to be there. If we go by God's word and there's no, everyone's equal, everyone's on the same setting, then we can deal with mankind in a much fair, much more fair, or much simpler fashion. Paul says, listen, their ethics break down. But according to the Bible, there is no partiality. With God, everyone is equal. Verse 8, he says, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. These are the people that live by ethics. They, get, they have this mindset. Tribulation anguish upon every soul of man, and doeth evil of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. He says there's no socioeconomic class. There's no race division. There's no problems at all with God because everyone's equal at the foot of the cross. You see, when we use the Bible as our standard, it's easy. But when we live in a moral or ethic society, Paul says, listen, those people fall short. They are sinful by their nature. Oh, there's the heathen world that is sinful, but those who claim to have the moral high ground or the ethical standards... They are sinners just the same. Their standards may be better. Their standards may be, uh, in, in some people's eyes, uh, more uh, palatable and more appreciated, but they're not right. The Word of God is always right. There's no partiality, but number two, there's no immunity. There's no immunity. Verse 12, For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without law. Paul, what he's saying here is that, all right, you live by an ethical standard or an ethical code. You don't live by the law that was given by Moses. That's fine. You're still held to God's standard. There's no immunity. You don't get a pass. Well, I didn't know because I lived by my ethical code. Paul said, no, that's, that, that's not going to hold water with God. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law, verse 13, for not the hearers of the law uh, are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. He said it's not just an ethical standard. It's not just a code that you believe or a creed that you say. It's what you do. And your, your deeds have violated the law, and because of that, you are a sinner. 
There's no immunity in, in God's eyes. All have sinned. And by the way, there is a, a, a clear laying out of judgment here. I think in your outlines, I, I put for you in italics, uh, the seven principles of God's judgment. They can be found throughout chapter 2 here. God's judgment is according to these seven things. Number one, according to truth. Number two, according to accumulated guilt. Number three, according to the works. And, and I've got your verses there, I think, in your outline so that you can see those. Uh, it, it, his judgment is without respect of persons, as we've said. It is according to the performance or obedience, not knowledge. Knowing the law is one thing. Doing the law is what God expects. God's judgment, number six, reaches the secrets of the heart. Well, I never sinned openly. That's okay. God knows your heart. God knows what you were thinking. That's why when Jesus came here, uh, came to this earth and he was here and was teaching, and he's, he's enhancing the law so that you and I in this age can understand it. He is saying to us, uh, for example, I've never committed adultery. He said, if you've looked on a woman you've, and lusted after, you've committed adultery. Jesus says, hey, listen, it's not always just the outward actions. It's the dwelling in your heart. It's the meditation and the ponderings of your heart. Be careful. He also said, listen, hey, you may come to, come to God and say, I never murdered anybody. But he said, if you've hated your brother, you're guilty of it. If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder in God's eyes. So when you think about that, we have to be very careful. The ethics, if you will, the moral condition of the world, they're still sinners. They're still in need of a Savior. They may have a standard that might be better than that of the heathen, but in God's eyes, they're no different. The heathen's world condition, the condition of the moral world, and third, the condition of the religious world. The condition of the religious world. Now, he deals specifically with the Jewish nation and the Hebrews, the children of Israel, but starting in verse 17, he talks about the religious man. If you trace throughout the book of Acts the beginnings of the New Testament church, they always struggled with this. Uh, the question was always, circumcision or not circumcision? And you say, well, why would you bring that up? The, the, the point is this. It was a practice that denoted their religious uh, devoutness. All right? And, and so it was an outward symbol or sign for the young men of that culture to say, I am religiously bound to this. They would be practicing Jews then. And so the thought was, okay, the law was given so that it would be our schoolmaster to bring us into uh, faith, as Galatians tells us. Then, therefore, many in the New Testament church were saying, well, we need to keep this practice going, this outward tradition, if you will, to bring us to Christ. Paul now deals in verse 17 to the end of the chapter with this. He says in verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. He said, listen... <clears throat> You are walking around, puffing your chest out, taking your lapel and popping your collar, if you will, saying, I am a Jew. Look how religious I am. Hey, you Gentiles here in Rome in the church, you've got nothing on me. I am religious. You see, the Jewish culture needed Christ as much as the Gentile culture needed Jesus Christ. He says in verse 18, And knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. They were religious and are confident that thou, that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. By the way, if he had not talked about the Jews here, you and I could really read a lot of religions. Does that not sound like the Catholic Church? Art confident that thou thyself art the guide of the blind? 
Well, the Catholics will say to come in and, and, and pray to the priest, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. He can guide you to righteousness. He can guide you because you don't understand the scriptures. Uh, the Anglican church is the same way. Uh, many, many religions are very much the same way where they will say to people, you don't know, I do, I'll, I'll lead you. That's what the Jews were doing in Rome. That's what they had said. Uh, they, and by the way, it was all across the whole Roman Empire where the church was now spreading. The Jewish culture was very reluctant because of their religion. Their religion they were clinging to as their salvation. Their works, their deeds, their efforts. And Paul is here laying out a very clear argument. Listen, the heathen world needs Christ. The moral world needs Christ. And the religious world needs Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we are all doomed, is what Paul is saying here. In fact, verses 17 through 24, he deals with the religious hypocrisy. Letter A in your outline, the religious hypocrisy. The physical descendants of Abraham, the Jews, were proud to bear that name, Hebrew or Jew. They bragged about Jehovah. In fact, in verse 17, they relished the status. They relished the tradition of their religions. They were important in their own eyes. You know, we have to be careful, even as Baptists, that we don't fall into a tradition. Well, my parents went to church. I would remind you, just because mom and dad went to church doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you got a, a fuzzy feeling during a preaching service doesn't mean that you are saved. Many of us in here have to at least stop at this point of Romans and ask ourselves this question. Have I realized I am a sinner, put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone plus nothing else, not based upon an experience, but based upon the facts that are found in the Word of God, and trusted Him as my personal Lord and Savior? Because what Paul is writing here is to you if you grew up in a church. Now think about that. He's writing it to those of us who grew up in a church. Now, I'm not saying you have to go back and stamp on a calendar the day you were saved. Uh, I've got a great little pamphlet from Dr. John R. Rice that is wonderful, talking about what, and I think the title of it might be, What Happens If I Can't Remember the Day? And he does a wonderful job dealing with that. You don't have to remember the day. Well, I was 12 years old, and I was on my knees in my daddy's living room. That's my testimony. I'm saying it kind of goofy, but that's mine. And I got down on my knees, and my dad and I went through the plan of salvation, and I prayed the sinner's prayer that night. Okay, well, that's mine. I didn't get saved because my mom and dad were there. I got saved because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, if I, if I was saved because mama and daddy were there, then I'm, re, I'm relying, or, or, or because of their good works, I'm relying on my religious tradition. Oh, my religious tradition isn't Catholic, as we might say. My religious tradition isn't Muslim, as we might say, with a disdain in our voice. My religious tradition would have been Baptist. But I need to know that I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. It's important for me. It's important for you. He said there is religious hypocrisy. You know one of the what telltale signs of people who are religious hypocrites? They like to get all the attention about being at church or being somewhere. But when you watch them sing or when you watch them uh, uh, try to go soul winning or do anything for the Lord, they kind of get this sullen and sulky attitude or, you know, they'll sing, huh? just as I am. <clears throat> you say, well, I don't sing that well. I understand that. But, you know, singing is really, to me, the standard bearer that the joy of the Lord is in your heart. Amen. It is. 
When you truly get salvation and, and you are saved, it busts out of you. You can't help it. I know that's not good grammar, but that's okay. It, it just comes oozing out of you. You were excited to be at church. Well, that preacher getting on me again. That preacher's always at, he's always on my case. He's calling me and he was at, over at our house and he tried to do this. Look, I'm simply saying if you have a vain, empty tradition, then you are condemned by your religion. That's what Paul is saying here. And thank goodness he put this in here. Thank goodness the Holy Spirit and his infinite wisdom is here inspiring uh, uh, Paul to write these words. Because he's reminding you and me, don't rely on your traditions. Let her be the religious heart. He deals with, from verses 25, the religious heart that is there. He says in verse 25, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. He said, listen, if you follow the traditions of the Old Testament and the law, even though we're in the age of grace is what Paul's saying. He goes, if you follow it and you're circumcised and you keep the law, okay. Because you're showing outwardly what is really true inwardly. You see, some of them were coming and, and doing the obedience and, and everything in the synagogue, but their heart was as wicked as they came. That's why Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you're, you're whitened sepulchers full of dead men's bones. He said, you're on the outside doing the show, but on the inside there's no go. There's a problem with your heart. And so as you think about that, that's what Paul says here in verse 25. He said, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. He said, good. I'm glad you went through the traditional rite, the religious tradition, because it did nothing. Verse 26, therefore, if uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Again, remember this is the tradition that we're focusing on. He said, all right, so those men that don't follow your vain religious traditions, if they keep the tenets of the law, is their heart not converted is what he's saying in verse 26. Aren't they acting like the circumcised? And the answer is yes. That's why it's great to read Old Testament books like the book of Ruth. Was she a Jew? No. But, but Ruth is a wonderful, wonderful picture of the church. She is a bride married into God's chosen people. Right? She was married to a man who was a Jew and therefore inherited all that belonged to him. We are the bride of Christ, the church. And one day at our wedding when we are officially named the bride, we will be married into all that is ours. You see, we read these Old Testament passages and sometimes they go <laughs> right over our head. But the pictures are very clear if you study the Bible. And so what Paul is here saying is that, listen, if their heart, if those who have been saved are doing it, then they are circumcised. They are keeping the law. They are, if you will, saved. Verse, 27, or verse 28. For he, that is, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew. That means chosen is what he's trying to say here. Which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter. Whose praise is not of men, but of God. Paul lays out very clearly, very concisely, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of chapter 2. There are three conditions of people in the world, and all three of them are sinners. All three of them have a sin nature, and all three of these groups need a Savior. See, the book of Romans is a wonderful, wonderful book to study. It's full of doctrine, but it does so in a very logical, step-by-step -step fashion. Paul said, listen, we have to understand we're God's servants. We're nothing without Him, is what he's saying. And not only are we nothing without Him, but our condition before we met Him 
Doesn't matter what camp you fell into. You were a heathen. You were an ethically right person. You were a religious traditionalist. Doesn't matter where you came from, what your background is. You're all sinners. You see, Romans is a good roadmap for us. We ought to study it. We ought to know it. In conclusion tonight, there's three things I want us to to just understand from the sermon. One, the judgment of God is holy and partial. He rewards righteousness where he finds it and recompenses or pays unrighteousness according to his word, the truth. Secondly, pagan Gentiles' conduct, uh, uh, conduct is inexcusable because they reject the light that they have. They have been given understanding through God's creation. They have been given knowledge through general revelation and through special revelation, the Word of God. But they stand and t- or they take that truth and they turn it into a lie, as he said, and so they are inexcusable in God's eyes. And thirdly, more Gentiles and Jews are guilty because they practice the same sins which condemn others. You see, the ethical and the religious people are in the same boat. Heathen, moral, and religious, everyone, all of us, needed Jesus Christ as our Savior.